Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, CTO of Portal. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham, and of course, we have our friend and colleague with us today, Nitin Gower. G'day, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be here. Glad to have Mark here today. Exactly. And we have a guest that's in today, which is Mark Witten, who's the CIO of Portal Asset Management. And uh, we're going to discuss macroeconomic conditions. Hey, Mark. Hello. Hey, how are you doing, guys? Great. Always, a, always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> Good on you. It's great to have you along. And look, like normal, this is not investment advice um, that we've got today. This is a discussion on macroeconomics and our theories and theses. Um, take it as interesting information, please. And so for those that listened to us last week, we discussed two main areas that we thought was particularly interesting. And one of those areas was the difference between the crypto marketplaces and the TradFi or traditional equity marketplaces. And those differences are, in short, the fact that crypto is operating 24-7, not six to eight hours a day. So therefore, it doesn't have a cool-off period. It also doesn't have any institutional implementation or, um, or breakdown that might suddenly stop a marketplace. So if a market drops 20%, there's no institution that steps in and says, stop crypto trading. It also doesn't have any natural buyers or what I'd prefer to call forced buyers, which is large superannuation companies that are just constantly having to buy into the marketplace. And finally, it doesn't have any sort of major vested interest groups that are talking it up like superannuation companies and big institutions and government bodies that are simply telling everyone, calm down, just relax, these market cycles pass. So accordingly, we tend to get fluctuations, volatility greater than traditional marketplaces. But one thing that's true, and that is the macroeconomic sections or the macroeconomic activities are having a much bigger influence on this market than we might've thought, say two years ago, and it's created a risk off right across all asset classes. And that's influenced this new asset class of digital assets. And so we wanna to talk today about why these correlations exist and when might there be a decoupling along the way. So Mark, you too are fresh from returning from Zurich and Geneva and London. We saw some of the largest banks and wealth managers in the world when we were there, no exceptions. They had seen these market retracements before because they're all many hundreds of years old in most cases. Um, but, and they'd also, I think we'd seen that they'd seen the risk off environment coming. They saw the signs. And so Mark, for the audience, what were the signs of that early risk off environment coming? And what might we have done um, as we saw those signs coming? Um, thanks, Derek. So. I think in most instances, um, a lot of the larger wealth managers who tend to be quite conservative, um, focusing on capital preservation, did see the signs and were relatively conservatively positioned. Um, we Unfortunately, we saw the signs. In September last year, we were carrying on about, I mean, our market commentary about how inflation was becoming a runaway issue. 
um, particularly around energy, um, as the US moved away from being energy independent to once again, being dependent on global energy markets. The Fed, unfortunately, didn't seem to be too concerned going into the end of the year and then, you know, into the beginning of this year, all of a sudden put its hand up and said, we underestimated this. So I think that was one of the first signs that, you know, we, we were getting concerned about. What, what we're also concerned about is we've been also talking about this for a long time is, you know, when you print a lot of money and you issue debt, but the debt is put to productive use and increases goods and services, like when a company issues debt and then its return on, on, on invested capital greater than its cost of the debt, that's a very positive thing. It makes everyone wealthier, which is, you know, the kind of point of capitalism to make the pie bigger. When you issue debt to sustain, unfortunately, you know, just basically the shutting down of global economy and you keep, you keep, you know, interest rates and the yield curve are naturally low for very long. It's almost like a snapback effect, which is what we're seeing now. Um, and we're not going to go into it because we've written about it in terms of that equation of the supply of money multiplied by its velocity or how fast it moves around has to equal prices times the quantity of goods and services. And that equation was vastly out of balance. Mm. What we're seeing now is the Fed is still in tightening mode. So they're still very much, I think, are, or when I say behind the curve, I think that they're now starting to notice um, maybe that their, their tools to combat this are quite limited. Um, you know, yesterday, um, the, the Fed, uh, the Dallas Fed came out um, with their survey, the manufacturing survey, which uh, plunged basically to the lowest level since 2020. And, you know, you've also got a lot weaker unemployment. You're seeing the housing market cool very rapidly. Um, and the respondents' comments were quite concerning as to the fact that if they, they're seeing that this current administration is either incompetent or is kind of stuck or is a deer in the headlights, they're constantly to figure out how they're going to get out of this. So I think we, we're probably starting to see the end of, uh, you know, peak inflation because demand is going to slow. People are starting to pull back on durable orders on everything. You know, as, as we spoke about before the call, the channel is full. There's an excess oversupply of inventory, I think, going into the second half of the year. From our perspective, what does this mean um, from a, an, an alternative asset perspective? So I, I don't want to be dramatic and say, well, it's the collapse of the US dollar. I don't know if it's the collapse, but it's definitely the end of US dollar dominance. I think the hegemony we've seen is going to start receding. I think you've seen the rise of emerging markets, and you can see that by the outperformance of emerging market bonds over the past month. Generally, a strong dollar is a headwind against emerging markets. But in this case, I think we're seeing emerging markets are going to pick up the baton of growth and we're going to see a kind of continued split between what we call the Western Christian super empire and, and, and the Asian super empire as depicted by David Murren in his book, Breaking the Code of History. The final thing I'd, I'd say is that they're going to be looking for alternatives, viable alternatives that have all the characteristics of a flight to safety, which, you know, US assets have become a lot more risky. So they're going to be looking yep. for you know, transferability, um, you know, accountability and so on, but also liquidity. So central bank digital currencies are, are without a doubt, maybe there was a 50-50 a on them two years ago, maybe it was less than 80% last year, like it's 100% going to happen now and it's 100% going to usher in a much stronger digital one, a stronger BRICS-based currency and a less dominant US dollar. And I think from an investor's point of view, those aren't things to invest in, those are just currencies to transact in. So I think the decoupling will almost be forced in that people are going to look away from U.S. Treasuries and who are the biggest holders of U.S. Treasuries. It's China, Saudis to an extent. 
there's going to be a sell-off of, I think, that end of the risk spectrum, which will cause rates to go much higher in the US than they'd like, and a movement of wealth into less traditional assets, whether it's gold, I don't know. I think I think crypto, particularly, you know, the, the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum and the more stable flight to safety we've seen will do a lot better. So I'll, I'll just pause there if there's any comments on that. No, I, I think um, I had a question this, uh, Mark. I think it's, it's analysis that resonates with a lot of readings that I've done as well. If, in fact, if you look at Bridgewater, uh, the, the, you know, they have gone about, I think about 10 billion investment they've had in the European markets uh, have, have gone short on 27 of the largest European sort of ecosystems around it. And the dollar hegemony has been questioned again with BRICS now, which is you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating a new block, um, both in terms of dependency and reduction to, you know, of dependency. What's interesting in your analysis is the word decoupling. Yeah. And Derek, if you recall the last conversation we talked about, so in your case, I think your assertion of decoupling is decoupling from the dollar-centric economic system that revolves around it to uh, you know, more than one currencies. And, and that creates more than one markets and yeah. gives investors the choices yeah. to be able to go back and forth and doesn't give an undue advantage of a global reserve to the US dollar system. And I think where we were heading is decoupling from the existing global macro to crypto macro. Uh, yeah. We've always talked about the fact that um, that the tightening, the overall liquidity tightening or quantitative tightening has a direct impact on uh, the same downward impact on the valuation and pricing of these assets uh, in crypto industry. And I think we've been debating as to what will it take for crypto to have its own macro, its own economic system and not rely, have reliant and any sort of correlation. Uh, so I, f- I find it interesting uh, to, to draw the analogy of what you said in terms of decoupling in the existing macro, whereas we've been debating of decoupling of crypto entirely from yes. the global macro. I think, I think the further thing I'd add on to that is a lot of the decoupling is being driven by population demographics. You know, the, the US and to an extent, the rest of the West and Europe, the UK have been issuing a lot of debt, but yet the same as Japan, their population is in structural decline. They're facing almost population collapse over the next sort of decade or two in terms of the ability to service that debt, whereas the population demographics are very much in favor of the emerging markets. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I do think crypto will decouple because the younger generation, but also generation that has not that much access, the bottom billions, as they're generally called, they don't have the same access to banking, financial services, capital markets, et cetera, are going to be by default more entrepreneurial and we'll look for creative ways of funding and financing their projects and doing cross-border business and so on. So I think that all bodes well for crypto versus traditional finance in the in the next three to five years. Well, I'm glad something is, is sounding optimistic <laughs> for crypto, given where we are, where any, we are any, in the, in the current market. In a storm, yeah. So this yeah, process no, no, that, yeah. that you wanted to chat about also, which is, you know, around the process of, of, of um, you know, the contagions, the ripple on effects that we've been seeing in the yeah. last couple of weeks and what that might mean to the market. I think, you know, we'd be interested in seeing what that is on, on that level too. What are your yeah. thoughts there? No, no. And, and I've been actually, in not just preparation for this podcast per se, looking into a lot of research as to what's causing this. And I think we all not, are not just the fact that we are in this space, but we're also curious. I'm, I'm, I'm curious in terms of, and so, you know, the state of crypto markets and outlook is, is what I had in mind. And if you look at some of the examples, right, the failures and ripple effect, and I, I would use the term contagion of incompetence 
if I can, if I can stay, use that term is if you, it's all started with Terra for four Celsius and the arrow capital, literally in a matter of three to four weeks, the entire, you know, end of May, all of June is being plagued with the circular sort of, you know, uh, impact of how these entities have been just investing in each other and leveraging each other's, uh, you know, uh, protocols. Uh, BlockFi, for example, um, suddenly has gotten a credit uh, sort of uh, extension from FTX. Um, and then you have the Voyager Digital, which has had the same challenge with uncollateralized loan of through 3AC in the scope of $350 million. Babel mm. Finance, laden with debt, just like mm. Celsius. Stop draws, um, CoinFlex, which was sort of known uh, for its strength in terms of building a new derivative markets again. Uh, you know, extreme market conditions is what they cite as in terms of pausing withdrawal. Maple Finance, again, talked about the fact that they're very resilient, understand the markets um, back in the day, and they've surpassed 1 billion in loans facing liquidity crisis due to orthogonal loans. And then orthogonal loans provided 10 million to Babel Finance uh, from a USDC pool to Maple Finance. So I think if you look at the entire, it's sort of a circular element, Right. And then you have others. You have the Nexo and you have the eight block capital. You have the D finance capital and the list goes on and on. Um, and I think that in summary, I think that if you look at the entire and I actually have a list of 17 different entities, which I used for research in terms of what really happened there is centralized entities uh, with opacity. And I might add ill-governed projects, which means that you can't really blame crypto for it because the ethos of cryptos was decentralization, transparent markets, transparent data. And these entities sat on top of that and created sort of a similar scheme to what we have seen in current financial markets, creating opacity of information. When impacted by adverse global macro conditions or adverse conditions led, you know, uh, instigated by global macro and overall quantitative tightening basically boils down to liquidity and, or, 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 you know, or lack of it. And on leverage pools, sort of circular trading investment between the same set of players. And we've saw that with Maple, Orthogonal, Orthogonal going to, to, to Babel, Babel eventually having issues with 3AC. So there's been sort of this, you know, domino effect. Uh, and, and that impact had the domino effect on, the, on, on, on all the connected parties. And so I think there's a little bit of that, which again, is tied to the fact that suddenly the, the liquidity tightened and all the, you know, the smart money found a way to, to move out to much more safer havens um, from that perspective. And I think, uh, and then you also had some fraudulent activities, I think that, you know, had you had Ponzi scheme like Bernie Madoff, where I think three AC capital, where some of the founders borrowed funds to repay interest and loans issued by lenders while cooking their books and showed some massive returns of capital and the daisy chain effect of borrowing from one, paying for another and investing in the same fund. I think this whole circular element led to this massive dominoes that fell off. And I think, um, by, by looking at that, I think that, you know, from, from this entire market has been quite challenging to unpack all these things, but I still have, you know, at least from valuation and pricing perspective, and happy to share as to what give Bitcoin its value. And that value still sustains. Uh, there are sort of element, yes, in terms of the actual valuation may go down, but the Bitcoin as a trust currency still persists. Uh, and so does the Ethereum ecosystem still stay strong, except that, yes, it's been plagued with uh, the uh, news from the adjunct projects that are sort of, uh, you know, casting the dark shadows on these um, these networks. I'll pause here to see if that made sense. Look, there's two things that cover there: opacity and the fact there's no regulation, which was part of last week's discussion too. 
And, and this space needs that. People will often have this general discussion like, you know, I don't like cryptocurrency. That's like saying, I don't like software. Like which section of software, why, and what upsets you about it? Um, the fact of the matter is cryptocurrency, algorithms based open, open source platforms, they're just tools. And the challenge is that these tools are getting used by human nature in any form whatsoever, calling out for the need for full disclosure. And full disclosure only occurs when you have some degree of regulation um, put in place. Mm. And I think as large as this space is becoming and as sophisticated as its algorithms are getting, it's actually calling for more and more need for um, regulation to occur. And for those that are listening to us that are libertarians, Regulation doesn't have to mean everything is regulated and it goes back to a centralized yeah. environment. doesn't have to yeah. mean that. Um, but, but, you know, it, it, it does mean that uh, if you're going to be taken seriously, um, risk mitigation has to occur. And, and the way to do that is to regulate. Now, Mark, we've talked before along the way um, often about the process of decoupling. And we're seeing this macroeconomic play out and it's had an impact on this space really, frankly, greater than we probably all thought it would, because for a long period of time, um, this space had little correlation with traditional economics. So what, what's your view of when decoupling might occur or what might trigger decoupling in the earlier part? I think there'll be, you know, in my mind, there's three, two very clear and the third is not so clear, but three very clear factors. The first is population demographics I spoke about earlier. Yeah. The fact that, you know, there'll be, as time goes on, there has to be a transfer of wealth from older generations to younger generations. And younger generations are a lot more comfortable um, with transacting, whether it's within crypto or whether it's in the, the gaming world, in digital skins and things like that. So there's already an adoption there and an ability to innovate and to accept that this is just the same as, as a credit card or any other form of digital cash. So I think that'll be one of the big drivers, the fact that emerging markets continue to get wealthier, particularly any commodity-based emerging markets in this cycle. Um, I think number two, a big um, reason for decoupling is that if I look at where do I see growth in the world, if you're sitting as, a, as an asset allocator and you're looking across all the asset classes, you have a clean piece of paper and you know a billion that you need to allocate and you go, well, do I wanna put it into equities? I don't, I don't see you know, any earnings visibility in equities, even now in the consumer staples, which tend to be very defensive. You know, I think there's a massive backlash against big tech, particularly media and, and telecoms. I think there's been concern around overreach, um, you know, concern around censorship, things like that. I think Web3 is going to be taking on the likes of Meta and, and others. So I don't see any value in equities, or, and I don't see any value. I think there's pockets of value, but I think it's very much you need to be you do a lot of deep dive work to find, you know, the, the small gems. Fixed income is, is collapsed, not collapsed, but it's down, you know, 25%, give or take, since the start of the year. My concern is high yield debt, which could, you know, that could fault of worse. Um, you know, as, as a lot of corporates have issued debt in the last decade to buy back shares and inflate their headline earnings per share, and they haven't really grown their revenue, they've just cut costs. That, that, that's going to come home to roost soon because as your revenue slows and you can't service your debts as rates go up, you know, what do you do? You need to issue equity, which further then dilutes your earnings per share. So you're going, it's just like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I think real estate has, has run very hard. 
Um, so I don't see, you know, I think there's still value there, but I don't see it as like, you know, a, a place where you're going to get super normal returns. And then you need to look at alternatives, whether it's art collectibles, you know, gold, et cetera, hedge funds, private equity. And crypto stands out because there's a difference between cryptocurrencies and then, you know, digital assets in the form of DeFi and smart contracts and so on, where you're actually seeing, you know, business models with underlying cash flows. Mm. And we've seen, a, as, as Nitin said, in some ways, a bit of negligence in how this was allowed to play out, but it's getting smarter and getting better. And then I think the third thing that'll ensure a decoupling is that we're seeing increased, you know, centralization, increased control, if anything. Yeah. Um, and there's a backlash against that too, particularly if you look at government overreach into private sector, into bank, private citizens, bank accounts, and so on. People are now thinking, well, how do I protect what I have? If I need to move, if I need to, to you know, is it transportable? Does it hold its value? You know, it's funny flying back from um, Europe to Australia and they give you that form that says, fill in, are you basically, you know, are you a terrorist? Are you carrying nuclear <laughs> yeah, weapons right. on you? And <laughs> one of the things it says is, are you carrying more than $10,000? And it's like, well, how would you know? I could be carrying a million dollars in crypto. There's no way you could ever know. It's yes. just as simple as that. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's part of it as well is people are looking for ways to preserve their wealth and to transport it and doing it in the traditional world has become way too onersome, way, way too onersome you know, in any way, shape or form. So I think those are the three factors that will cause it to decouple is like demographics, growth, government overreach. And, and also the fact that, you know, it's based upon different fundamentals. As you say, um, you know, the equities market is quite mature now you're not going to see exponential growth in a lot of the equities markets because there's not exponential opportunities there. Whereas this is a very young space with a founding technology that is able to grow at an extraordinary rate. They shouldn't be aligned. Ultimately, they should decouple because there's different fundamentals between what is happening in the entire world of open source and blockchain-driven technologies and what is happening in centralized tech environments. I think, Derek, just to add one other thing to that for our pause, it's like, you know, I started my, my career during the Asian financial crisis in 1998. Um, that's when I started, you know, not directly managing money, but being on teams that managed money. And I look back and I said, well, what were the top companies in the, in the 90s? And it was the banks under leveraged buyouts. And then what are the top companies at the end of the 90s? It was the tech businesses before the dot-com crash. And then we saw the rise of, you know, commodities. And then we saw the rise of, you know, different tech. So, you know, people are like acting all surprised that the fact of the matter is that Google, Amazon and the rest of them are not going to be the big companies, not going to be the biggest entities in the world 10 years from now. It's just not. That's how history works. You know, the mining yeah, companies were once seen as un unsurpassable and look at them today. Yeah, I know. So, so, you know, one question, I think, um, Derek, that I had for you when you had your first sort of talk about the CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And we talked about BRICS um, and you mentioned that central bank digital currencies are 100% on the agenda. And that is also another avenue for them to displace the dollar hegemony. Was that assertion because the fact that being a digital currency, the mobility and the reach becomes easier than the pool and you know, how the money you know, how the monetary system in these countries are managed? Is that, was that the intent as, as to how will that sort of displace the dominance of one single currency that we have, as opposed to like the BRICS having their own digital currency agendas? And I think India, Brazil, Russia, and, and China, China, of course, is ahead in that, in that respect. Mm -hmm. What is the thinking behind the emergence of CBDC in that context? 
Um, look, I think that's that's a question for Mark um, to get across. I mean, yeah. what I'm what I'm looking at here is is you know the CBDCs before were considered some unusual piece of technology. Now the CBDCs are getting driven by a change in macroeconomics because of what's happened with the invasion of of Ukraine by Russia, and there are countries that are realizing that it's not worth being in the system if they can create their own. So I think different macroeconomic views are pushing that um, and pushing it in a way that didn't exist 24 months ago. What are your thoughts, Mark? So fiat currency by definition is floating, which means it's backed by nothing but your faith in your government and the ability to collect taxes. Russia for the first time, I think since, I think pre-World War, since post-World War II, is Russia for the first time has defaulted on its debt. It's just said, yeah. you're not gonna pay. What do you do? You can't enforce it, right? So we've seen this with Argentina. We saw which is actually what sparked the Asian financial crisis was Argentina defaulting on its debt and that filtering through into bond yields and the leverage therein. So, you know, in, in my opinion, it's like, well, we're all assume that the US is the lender of last resort, and, you know, Japan, the most conservative countries in the world, you know, Japan, et cetera, China, because of trade flows, those are the biggest holders of US debt. And, you know, what happens when the U.S. either cannot or does not want to pay or, you know, the U.S. dollar is no longer seen as a real store of value, how they're going to go after the assets. So I think we might see a massive shift into CBDCs, not because countries want this, but because we're going to be forced to in order to continue providing liquidity. You could see, I mean, what happens if U.S. banks like a Lehman's, you know, scenario go barely up? You know, when Lehman's went, the other five banks went back to the Fed and said, listen, if you don't backstop us, you'll see a reduction of 40 to 50% of liquidity in the U.S. market. Right. So, so what do you do? So, so the thing is, this, yeah, you know, what I was getting at is that CBDC, central bank digital currencies, don't necessarily change the definition of sovereign issued fiat. They're still fiat. It's in digital Ooh. form. And my thinking or my assumption was when you talk about this in terms of displacement or sort of creating uh, another parallel reserve currencies because of the fact that now it's digital, we have enough information on these things and we may have faith in some other entities and, and it's more, you know, it's, it's, it's the transport is a lot easier now because they're digital, mm. but the, the, the definition of, you know, sovereign issued fiat does not necessarily change with CBDC. These are still money issued by and you know by the government based on the faith of the government it's still a belief system yes. um so I, i'm still uh, puzzled, puzzled ask, in that but we can take yourself, it like. so ask yourself if you believe that if, let's just say the u.s was his name was sam and he was a friend of yours and you had <laughs> given him a lot of money and he decided now he's not going to pay and then he came back to you to ask for more money down the line, even though it's in a different form and saying, no, it's CBDCs. It's not the same as the debts I gave you. I think that's my biggest concern <laughs> is the world is losing faith in the US, both from a military perspective, but also from a, a financial perspective. You know, th that's the worry. It's yeah. printed too much money. It's it's monetary policy experiment that I think whether they knew of the intended consequences or unintended consequences, sorry, I, I don't know. But I can't see, I think the US might become part of a basket I don't see the US being the dominant currency going forward. I think that those days are coming to an end. And that's why we've seen such painful gyrations in the market. It, it just feels that no, way. I, and I, yeah, that, that debate has been on, ensued for a long time in, in the industry. And that's why I think something like Bitcoin, which is truly a decentralized system and currency of choice, can truly provide that competitive uh, you know, uh, currency. And I say competitive currency because I think it's important for us to have two competing or more than 
you know, one competing asset because it gives us a choice. It gives the, uh, you know, both from investment, but also in terms of, you know, how we like to treat and move value and, uh, across the system. And Nitin, you also, you know, as you talk about Bitcoin, like what are the things that people like about it? The finite supply, the lack of control by any centralized institution, all those things yeah. that they say, well, it's a store of value that has a real store of value as long as the regulators play, you know, play along. So I, I think there'll be an emergence of more than one, you know, when I say more than one cryptocurrency, I mean more than one standard of, of and I don't know about Bitcoin, but I, I do get the feeling the biggest unicorns in the world a decade from now are going to come out of the DeFi and, and Web3 space. Mm, very much. So. Oh, I agree. We're now heading into our, our, our late time of this uh, webinar and the, the, <laughs> of this podcast. And we, we so enjoy the conversations. They can go for a long time. But I'll tell you a quick secret. And that is that tomorrow, um, Portal Asset Management is doing a webinar series called The Great Decoupling. So you'll find that ultimately on the Portal Asset Management, um, so portal.am website. Um, and Pat Lebetica is coming on and he's discussing the expectation of the great decoupling and what that might mean. So um, everyone's welcome to join that uh, tomorrow, just after the time that this web, this podcast will be released, or if they want, they can hear it at a later date on either the Portal um, Asset Management podcast site um, or on the YouTube site. So same topic expanded with a new speaker <laughs> and an hour to discuss it, which is excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming along and joining us, Mark. And won't no, be the last pleasure. time we see you. It's always good to have you on on um, on the show. And uh, and Nitin, um, this this occurrence that we're seeing, um, you know, we wonder whether it's dramatically different uh, to what we've seen in the past, or with whether this is actually you know an outcome of of a nature term formed around the negotiation of t-shirts in Asia. That is <laughs> same same but different. <laughs> and, and it's something that um, economists are always going to be looking at. Is this the same but different? I think it's going to be different from what we've seen before. But human nature, tribalism, greed, um, lack of regulations or the onset of regulations are all going to play a role in how it plays out. I think it's fair mm. to say. No, completely agree, Tarek. Great chat, great conversation. Mark, thanks for your insights. Yeah, my it pleasure. Really Thanks for the fantastic the opportunity. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed chatting to you. I think one of the things that um, gives me a lot of hope and excitement is just watching my children and, and how that they already are like playing games like Roblox, where they're trading with each other and their friends yep, and, that's and cousins right. in digital currencies. And for them, it's like I'll swap you, you know, a digital horse for a digital ruby, and you know, they're already in that mindset. So. I think we 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 definitely headed for a you know world where the metaverse will create a lot of value for people. Agreed. All, All right, right, gentlemen. Look forward to seeing you next week and tomorrow on the podcast uh, on the tomorrow. webinar. Mark, bye for now. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on Nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.